Father Who Reads would like to welcome you to the podcast. I am Michael Tillman, and in this series, each episode will feature an introduction to a tale or part of a larger story, and my reading of the tale intended for children of all ages. As the podcast is listener-supported, please consider becoming a patron of A Father Who Reads on Patreon to gain access to even more audio recordings. It is September 11, 2020, and I'm so glad to be here with you today. First up, I'm going to mention some changes in the podcast. We have two editions and an upgrade of sorts. This week, I debut my Castles and Cathedrals section, presenting discussion about real-world castles and cathedrals to add atmosphere to your enjoyment of the readings. Also debuting this week is my section on mythological and fantastic pantheons and creatures, called I'd Like to Speak to the Menagerie. In this section, I'll be covering the mythologies of various peoples and supplementing that information with the canon index of creatures from Dungeons & Dragons, which, for those of you who aren't that familiar, is something of a mythological boiling pot in its own right. Now, the upgrade I've added to the podcast is a chapter index, so that if you only want to hear a certain section, you can jump to it, or if you want to avoid a section, you can skip it. But nobody wants to skip anything, surely. I'll also mention that the castles and cathedrals, and I'd like to speak to the menagerie spots, will have correlating YouTube videos, meaning you can see pictures of all the creatures and places I talk about, photos in the case of the castles, and artist interpretations in the case of the creatures. Now on to the podcast. My, what a week it's been. There's just no way to prepare for the level of involvement a child will require during a growth spurt. All of those movies that show the much-anticipated moment when a child finally drifts off to dreamland are lying to you. You end up waiting for that moment 8 to 10 times a day when it comes to breastfeeding a child. And, obviously, that's not my specific duty, but I do need to be on hand to help. And frankly, I do enjoy bottle feeding Sebastian. He seems so calm and content when he feeds. There are also those moments when he's smiling and starts to coo, where it's not a cry or a plea, but just vocal noises, like he's about to use words. I love every one of those moments. Now to introduce today's reading. Today we have the eighth tale from the Lang's Blue Fairy Book, which is another classic associated with the Arabian Nights, though in truth it was not there originally. Aladdin and the Wonderful Lamp was added to the Arabian Nights by Frenchman Antoine Gaillan, who was the collection's first European translator. He in turn received the story from a Maronite storyteller named Hannah Diab. Like Cinderella last week, I think many people's first real encounter with Aladdin, at this point at least, was probably the Disney film from 1992, with many entries following as a Disney character, including three animated sequels, a live-action remake with Will Smith, of which I'm sure you're aware, appearing in the Kingdom Hearts video games, and as a DLC for Disney Infinity Marvel superheroes. I knew of Aladdin before seeing that particular movie, but not because I had read Scheherazade. There's a musical as old as 1906, a televised musical from 1958, Lottie Reiniger's fantastic stop-motion film The Adventures of Prince Ahmed in 1926, which combines the story of Aladdin with Ahmed, a televised musical from 1958, a Popeye cartoon in 1939, a Mr. Magoo cartoon in 1959, and live-action films from 1917, 1940, 1945, 1946, 1951, 1966 in Soviet Russia, 1972 in Mexico, and 1978 in Bollywood, and I'll stop there. 
but know that that's not anywhere near half the representations you can find if you look. I'll sheepishly mention that my introduction to the character was in fact the Popeye cartoon. Of course, our story centers around a do-nothing boy who falls in love with the Sultan's daughter, is tricked into finding a magic lamp by a wizard, becomes the princess's husband, and creates a great palace for himself, only to have it stolen by the wizard's brother, but finally regains all that was lost for a happy ending. What to expect in Aladdin and the Wonderful Lamp In this story, we have a malevolent magician and his brother. The magician ingratiates himself to Aladdin and his mother by lying about being a relative, something of a human analog to the big bad wolf, who lied about being Red Riding Hood's grandmother. Again, it's always a good time to talk to children about how to recognize adults that should be avoided. The magician indeed planned to assassinate Aladdin, but was unsuccessful. There are two primary magical objects in the tale, a magic ring and a magic lamp, both with genies attached. Jinn tales often incorporate a moral episode about being careful what you wish for, but fairy tales, on the other hand, often lack morality. That's part of their charm. So, like having a conversation about Santa Claus, it's good to temper the desire to get everything one wants without having to first do the legwork. Now, when Aladdin falls in love with the princess, the way he woos her is to actually transport her and her current courter out of the palace, make the courter sleep outside, and sleep in bed with her two nights in a row. It doesn't get more racy than that, but it's written very strangely, and the princess is so affected by it that she stops talking for several days. This is probably not the best imagery to give a child you plan to teach about how to treat someone they find interesting or attractive. There's an odd bit between the princess and the sultan where, after she's kidnapped by Aladdin, she refuses to speak, and the sultan subsequently threatens to cut off her head. Then later, when she's kidnapped by the magician, he states that he simply can't live without her. So, seriously, don't be this kind of parent. As Aladdin starts to court the princess publicly, one of the things he wishes for is 80 slaves. 40 black to carry things, led by 40 white. Slavery is bad enough, but wishing for slaves is rather above and beyond, to say nothing of the racism implied by the white and black hierarchy. To regain the princess after the magician kidnaps her, they poison him to death. The wicked magician's even more wicked brother kills a holy woman to sneak into the palace and ingratiate himself to the princess, but upon being found out is killed outright by Aladdin. Charming. But then... The story is Aladdin and the Wonderful Lamp, not Aladdin and the Wonderful Palace of Justice. Don't murder people, folks. But, as they say, without further ado, let's hear the tale. Aladdin and the Wonderful Lamp There once lived a poor tailor, who had a son called Aladdin a careless idle boy who would do nothing but play ball all day long in the streets with little idle boys like himself. This so grieved the father that he died. Yet in spite of his mother's tears and prayers, Aladdin did not mend his ways. One day, when he was playing in the streets as usual, a stranger asked him his age, and if he was not the son of Mustafa the tailor. I am, sir, replied Aladdin, but he died a long while ago. On this, the stranger, who was a famous African magician, fell on his neck and kissed him, saying, I am your uncle, and knew you from your likeness to my brother. Go to your mother and tell her I am coming. Aladdin ran home and told his mother of his newly found uncle. Indeed, child, she said. Your father had a brother, 
but I always thought he was dead. However, she prepared supper and bade Aladdin seek his uncle, who came laden with wine and fruit. He presently fell down and kissed the place where Mustafa used to sit, bidding Aladdin's mother not to be surprised at not having seen him before, as he had been forty years out of the country. He then turned to Aladdin and asked him his trade, at which the boy hung his head, while his mother burst into tears. On learning that Aladdin was idle and would learn no trade, he offered to take a shop for him and stock it with merchandise. Next day he bought Aladdin a fine suit of clothes and took him all over the city, showing him the sights, and brought him home at nightfall to his mother, who was overjoyed to see her son so fine. The next day, the magician led Aladdin into some beautiful gardens a long way outside the city gates. They sat down by a fountain, and the magician pulled a cake from his girdle, which he divided between them. They then journeyed onward till they almost reached the mountains. Aladdin was so tired that he begged to go back, but the magician beguiled him with pleasant stories and led him on in spite of himself. At last they came to two mountains divided by a narrow valley. We will go no farther, said the false uncle. I will show you something wonderful. Only do you gather up sticks while I kindle a fire. When it was lit, the magician threw on it a powder he had about him, at the same time saying some magical words. The earth trembled a little and opened in front of them, disclosing a square flat stone with a brass ring in the middle to raise it by. Aladdin tried to run away, but the magician caught him and gave him a blow that knocked him down. What have I done, uncle? he said piteously, whereupon the magician said more kindly, Fear nothing but obey me. Beneath this stone lies a treasure which is to be yours, and no one else may touch it. So you must do exactly as I tell you. At the word treasure Aladdin forgot his fears and grasped the ring as he was told, saying the names of his father and grandfather. The stone came up quite easily, and some steps appeared. Go down, said the magician. At the foot of those steps you will find an open door leading into three large halls. Tuck up your gown and go through them without touching anything, or you will die instantly. These halls lead into a garden of fine fruit trees. Walk on until you come to a niche in a terrace where stands a lighted lamp. Pour out the oil it contains, and bring it to me. He drew a ring from his finger and gave it to Aladdin, bidding him prosper. Aladdin found everything as the magician had said, gathered some fruit off the trees, and, having got the lamp, arrived at the mouth of the cave. The magician cried out in a great hurry, Make haste and give me the lamp. This Aladdin refused to do until he was out of the cave. The magician flew into a terrible passion, and throwing some more powder on the fire, he said something, and the stone rolled back into its place. The magician left Persia forever which plainly showed that he was no uncle of Aladdin's, but a cunning magician who had read in his magic books of a wonderful lamp which would make him the most powerful man in the world. Though he alone knew where to find it, he could only receive it from the hand of another. He had picked out the foolish Aladdin for this purpose, intending to get the lamp and kill him afterward. For two days Aladdin remained in the dark, crying and lamenting. At last he clasped his hands in prayer, and in so doing rubbed the ring, which the magician had forgotten to take from him. Immediately an enormous and frightful genie rose out of the earth, saying, What wouldst thou with me? I am the slave of the ring, and will obey thee in all things. Aladdin fearlessly replied, Deliver me from this place! Whereupon the earth opened, and he found himself outside. As soon as his eyes could bear the light, he went home, but fainted on the threshold. When he came to himself, he told his mother what had passed, and showed her the lamp and the fruits he had gathered in the garden which were, in reality, precious stones. He then asked for some food. Alas, child, she said, 
I have nothing in the house, but I have spun a little cotton and will go and sell it. Aladdin bade her keep her cotton, for he would sell the lamp instead. As it was very dirty, she began to rub it, that it might fetch a higher price. Instantly, a hideous genie appeared and asked what she would have. She fainted away, but Aladdin, snatching the lamp, said boldly, Fetch me something to eat. The genie returned with a silver bowl, twelve silver plates containing rich meats, two silver cups, and two bottles of wine. Aladdin's mother, when she came to herself, said, Whence comes this feast? Ask not, but eat, replied Aladdin. So they sat at breakfast till it was dinner time, and Aladdin told his mother about the lamp. She begged him to sell it, and have nothing to do with devils. No, said Aladdin, since chance hath made us aware of its virtues, we will use it, and the ring likewise, which I shall always wear on my finger. When they had eaten all the genie had brought, Aladdin sold one of the silver plates, and so on until none were left. He then had recourse to the genie, who gave him another set of plates, and thus they lived for many years. One day, Aladdin heard an order from the sultan, proclaimed that everyone was to stay at home and close his shutters, while the princess, his daughter, went to and from the bath. Aladdin was seized by a desire to see her face, which was very difficult, as she was always veiled. He hid himself behind the door of the bath and peeped through a chink. The princess lifted her veil as she went in, and looked so beautiful that Aladdin fell in love with her at first sight. He went home so changed that his mother was frightened. He told her he loved the princess so deeply that he could not live without her, and meant to ask her in marriage of her father. His mother, on hearing this, burst out laughing, but Aladdin at last prevailed upon her to go before the sultan and carry his request. She fetched a napkin and laid it in the magic fruits from the enchanted garden, which sparkled and shone like the most beautiful jewels. She took these with her to please the sultan and set out, trusting in the lamp. The grand vizier and the lords of the council had just gone in as she entered the hall and placed herself in front of the sultan. He, however, took no notice of her. She went every day for a week and stood in the same place. When the council broke up on the sixth day, the sultan said to his vizier, I see a certain woman in the audience chamber every day carrying something in a napkin. Call her next time, that I may find out what she wants. Next day, at a sign from the vizier, she went up to the foot of the throne and remained kneeling till the sultan said to her, Rise, good woman, and tell me what you want. She hesitated, so the sultan sent away all but the vizier and bade her speak frankly, promising to forgive her beforehand for anything she might say. She then told him of her son's violent love for the princess. I prayed for him to forget her, she said, but in vain. He threatened to do some desperate deed if I refused to go and ask your majesty for the hand of the princess. Now I pray you to forgive not me alone, but my son Aladdin. The sultan asked her kindly what she had in the napkin, whereupon she unfolded the jewels and presented them. He was thunderstruck, and turning to the vizier said, What sayest thou? Ought I not to bestow the princess on one who values her at such a price? The vizier, who wanted her for his own son, begged the sultan to withhold her for three months, in the course of which he hoped his son would contrive to make him a richer present. The sultan granted this, and told Aladdin's mother that, though he consented to the marriage, she must not appear before him again for three months. Aladdin waited patiently for nearly three months, but after two had elapsed, his mother, going into the city to buy oil, found everyone rejoicing and asked what was going on. Do you not know, was the answer, that the son of the Grand Vizier is to marry the Sultan's daughter tonight? Breathless, she ran and told Aladdin, who was overwhelmed at first, but presently bethought him of the lamp. 
He rubbed it, and the genie appeared, saying, What is thy will? Aladdin replied, The sultan, as thou knowest, has broken his promise to me, and the vizier's son is to have the princess. My command is that tonight you bring hither the bride and bridegroom. Master, I obey, said the genie. Aladdin then went to his chamber, where, sure enough, at midnight the genie transported the bed containing the vizier's son and the princess. Take this new married man, he said, and put him outside in the cold, and return at daybreak. Whereupon the genie took the vizier's son out of bed, leaving Aladdin with the princess. Fear nothing, Aladdin said to her. You are my wife, promised to me by your unjust father, and no harm shall come to you. The princess was too frightened to speak, and passed the most miserable night of her life, while Aladdin lay down beside her and slept soundly. At the appointed hour the genie fetched in the shivering bridegroom, laid him in his place, and transported the bed back to the palace. Presently the sultan came to wish his daughter good morning. The unhappy vizier's son jumped up and hid himself, while the princess would not say a word, and was very sorrowful. The sultan sent her mother to her, who said, How comes it, child, that you will not speak to your father? What has happened? The princess sighed deeply, and at last told her mother how, during the night, the bed had been carried into some strange house, and what had passed there. Her mother did not believe her in the least, but bade her rise and consider it an idle dream. The following night exactly the same thing happened, and next morning, on the princess's refusal to speak, the sultan threatened to cut off her head. She then confessed all, bidding him to ask the vizier's son if it were not so. The sultan told the vizier to ask his son, who owned the truth, adding that, dearly as he loved the princess, he had rather die than go through another such fearful night, and wished to be separated from her. His wish was granted, and there was an end to feasting and rejoicing. When the three months were over, Aladdin sent his mother to remind the sultan of his promise. She stood in the same place as before, and the sultan, who had forgotten Aladdin, at once remembered him, and sent for her. On seeing her poverty the sultan was less inclined than ever to keep his word, and asked his vizier's advice who counseled him to set so high a value on the princess that no man living could come up to it. The sultan then turned to Aladdin's mother, saying, Good woman, a sultan must remember his promises, and I will remember mine. But your son must first send me forty basins of gold, brimful of jewels, carried by eighty slaves, splendidly dressed. Tell him that I await his answer. The mother of Aladdin bowed low and went home, thinking all was lost. She gave Aladdin the message, adding, he may wait long enough for your answer. Not so long, mother, as you think, her son replied. I would do a great deal more than that for the princess. He summoned the genie, and in a few moments the eighty slaves arrived, and filled up the small house and garden. Aladdin made them set out to the palace, two and two, followed by his mother. They were so richly dressed, with such splendid jewels in their girdles, that everyone crowded to see them, and the basins of gold they carried on their heads. They entered the palace, and, after kneeling before the sultan, stood in a half-circle round the throne with their arms crossed, while Aladdin's mother presented them to the sultan. He hesitated no longer, but said, Good woman, return and tell your son that I wait for him with open arms. She lost no time in telling Aladdin, bidding him make haste, but Aladdin first called the genie. I want a scented bath, he said, a richly embroidered habit, a horse surpassing the sultan's, and twenty slaves to attend me. Besides this, six slaves, beautifully dressed, to wait on my mother. And lastly, ten thousand pieces of gold in ten purses. No sooner said than done. Aladdin mounted his horse and passed through the streets, 
the slaves strewing gold as they went. Those who had played with him in his childhood knew him not, he had grown so handsome. When the sultan saw him, he came down from his throne, embraced him, and led him into a hall where a feast was spread, intending to marry him to the princess that very day. But Aladdin refused, saying, I must build a palace fit for her, and took his leave. Once home, he said to the genie, Build me a palace of the finest marble, set with jasper, agate, and other precious stones. In the middle you shall build me a large hall with a dome, its four walls of massy gold and silver, each having six windows, whose lattices, all except one which is to be left unfinished, must be set with diamonds and rubies. There must be stables and horses and grooms and slaves. Go and see about it. The palace was finished by the next day, and the genie carried him there and showed him all his orders faithfully carried out, even to the laying of a velvet carpet from Aladdin's palace to the sultan's. Aladdin's mother then dressed herself carefully and walked to the palace with her slaves, while he followed her on horseback. The sultan sent musicians with trumpets and cymbals to meet them, so that the air resounded with music and cheers. She was taken to the princess, who saluted her and treated her with great honor. At night, the princess said goodbye to her father, and set out on the carpet for Aladdin's palace, with his mother at her side, and followed by the hundred slaves. She was charmed at the sight of Aladdin, who ran to receive her. "'Princess,' he said, "'blame your beauty for my boldness if I have displeased you.' She told him that, having seen him, she willingly obeyed her father in this matter. After the wedding had taken place, Aladdin led her into the hall, where a feast was spread, and she supped with him, after which they danced till midnight. Next day, Aladdin invited the sultan to see the palace. On entering the hall with the four-and-twenty windows, with their rubies, diamonds, and emeralds, he cried, "'It is a world's wonder!' There is only one thing that surprises me. Was it by accident that one window was left unfinished? No, sir, by design, returned Aladdin. I wished your majesty to have the glory of finishing this palace. The sultan was pleased and sent for the best jewelers in the city. He showed them the unfinished window and made them fit it up like the others. Sir, replied the spokesman, we cannot find jewels enough. The sultan had his own fetched, which they soon used, but to no purpose for in a month's time the work was not half done. Aladdin, knowing that their task was vain, bade them undo their work and carry the jewels back, and the genie finished the window at his command. The sultan was surprised to receive his jewels again, and visited Aladdin, who showed him the window finished. The sultan embraced him, the envious vizier meanwhile hinting that it was the work of enchantment. Aladdin had won the hearts of the people by his gentle bearing. He was made captain of the sultan's armies, and won several battles for him but remained modest and courteous as before, and lived thus in peace and content for several years. But far away in Africa, the magician remembered Aladdin, and by his magic arts discovered that Aladdin, instead of perishing miserably in the cave, had escaped, and had married a princess, with whom he was living in great honor and wealth. He knew that the poor tailor's son could only have accomplished this by means of the lamp, and traveled night and day until he reached the capital of China, bent on Aladdin's ruin, as he passed through the town, he heard people talking everywhere about a marvelous palace. Forgive my ignorance, he said. What is this palace you speak of? Have you not heard of Prince Aladdin's palace? was the reply. The greatest wonder of the world? I will direct you if you have a mind to see it. The magician thanked him who spoke, and having seen the palace, knew that it had been raised by the genie of the lamp, and became half mad with rage. He determined to get hold of the lamp, and again plunge Aladdin into the deepest poverty. Unluckily, Aladdin had gone a-hunting for eight days, which gave the magician plenty of time, 
He bought a dozen copper lamps, put them into a basket, and went to the palace, crying, New lamps for old! followed by a jeering crowd. The princess, sitting in the hall of four-and-twenty windows, sent a slave to find out what the noise was about, who came back laughing, so that the princess scolded her. Madam, replied the slave, who can help laughing to see an old fool offering to exchange fine new lamps for old ones? Another slave, hearing this, said, There is an old one in the cornice there which you can have. Now this was the magic lamp, which Aladdin had left there, as he could not take it out hunting with him. The princess, not knowing its value, laughingly bade the slave to take it and make the exchange. She went and said to the magician, Give me a new lamp for this. He snatched it and bade the slave take her choice, amid the jeers of the crowd. Little he cared, but left off crying his lamps, and went out of the city gates to a lonely place, where he remained till nightfall, when he pulled out the lamp and rubbed it. The genie appeared, and at the magician's command carried him, together with the palace and the princess in it, to a lonely place in Africa. Next morning, the sultan looked out of the window toward Aladdin's palace and rubbed his eyes, for it was gone. He sent for the vizier and asked what had become of the palace. The vizier looked out too and was lost in astonishment. He again put it down to enchantment, and this time the sultan believed him, and sent thirty men on horseback to fetch Aladdin in chains. They met him riding home, bound him, and forced him to go with them on foot. The people, however, who loved him, followed armed, to see that he came to no harm. He was carried before the sultan, who ordered the executioner to cut off his head. The executioner made Aladdin kneel down, bandaged his eyes, and raised his scimitar to strike. At that instant, the vizier, who saw that the crowd had forced their way into the courtyard, and were scaling the walls to rescue Aladdin, called to the executioner to stay his hand. The people, indeed, looked so threatening that the sultan gave way and ordered Aladdin to be unbound, and parted him in the sight of the crowd. Aladdin now begged to know what he had done. False wretch, said the sultan, come thither, and showed him from the window the place where his palace had stood. Aladdin was so amazed that he could not say a word. Where is my palace and my daughter? demanded the sultan. For the first I am not so deeply concerned, but my daughter I must have, and you must find her or lose your head. Aladdin begged for forty days in which to find her promising, if he failed, to return and suffer death at the sultan's pleasure. His prayer was granted, and he went forth sadly from the sultan's presence. For three days he wandered about like a madman, asking everyone what had become of his palace, but they only laughed and pitied him. He came to the banks of a river, and knelt down to say his prayers before throwing himself in. In so doing, he rubbed the magic ring he still wore. The genie he had seen in the cave appeared, and asked his will. Save my life, genie, said Aladdin. That is not in my power, said the genie. I am only the slave of the ring. You must ask him of the lamp. Even so, said Aladdin. But thou canst take me to the palace, and set me down under my dear wife's window. He had once found himself in Africa, under the window of the princess, and fell asleep out of sheer weariness. He was awakened by the singing of the birds, and his heart was lighter. He saw plainly that all he saw plainly that all his misfortunes were owing to the loss he saw plainly that all his misfortunes were owing to the loss of the lamp and vainly wondered who had robbed him of it that morning the princess rose earlier than she had done since she had been carried into africa by the magician whose company she was forced to endure once a day she however treated him so harshly that he dared not live there altogether as she was dressing one of her women looked out and saw aladdin 
The princess ran and opened the window, and at the noise she made Aladdin look up. She called him to come to her, and great was the joy of these lovers at seeing each other again. After he had kissed her, Aladdin said, I beg of you, princess, in God's name, before we speak of anything else, for your own sake and mine, tell me what has become of an old lamp I left on the cornice, in the hall of four-and-twenty windows, when I went to hunting. Alas, she said, I am the innocent cause of our sorrows, and told him of the exchange of the lamp. Now I know, cried Aladdin, that we have to thank the African magician for this. Where is the lamp? He carries it about with him, said the princess. I know, for he pulled it out of his breast to show me. He wishes me to break my faith with you and marry him, saying that you were beheaded by my father's command. He is forever speaking ill of you, but I only reply by my tears. If I persist, I doubt not but he will use violence. Aladdin comforted her and left her for a while. He changed clothes with the first person he met in the town, and having bought a certain powder, returned to the princess, who led him in by a little side door. Put on your most beautiful dress, he said to her, and receive the magician with smiles, leading him to believe that you have forgotten me. Invite him to sup with you, and say you wish to taste the wine of his country. He will go for some, and while he is gone I will tell you what to do. She listened carefully to Aladdin, and when he left she arrayed herself gaily for the first time since she left China. She put on a girdle and a headdress of diamonds, and, seeing in a glass that she was more beautiful than ever, received the magician, saying, to his great amazement, I have made up my mind that Aladdin is dead, and that all my tears will not bring him back to me, so I am resolved to mourn no more, and have therefore invited you to sup with me, but I am tired of the wines of China, and would fain taste those of Africa. The magician flew to his cellar, and the princess put the powder Aladdin had given her in her cup. When he returned, she asked him to drink her health in the wine of Africa, handing him her cup in exchange for his, as a sign she was reconciled to him. Before drinking, the magician made her a speech in praise of her beauty, but the princess cut him short, saying, Let us drink first, and you shall say what you will afterward. She set her cup to her lips and kept it there, while the magician drained his to the dregs, and fell back, lifeless. The princess then opened the door to Aladdin, and flung her arms round his neck. But Aladdin put her away, bidding her leave him, as he had more to do. He then went to the dead magician, took the lamp out of his vest, and bade the genie carry the palace, and all in it, back to China. This was done, and the princess in her chamber only felt two little shocks, and little thought she was at home again. The sultan, who was sitting in his closet, mourning for his lost daughter, happened to look up and rubbed his eyes, for there stood the palace as before. He hastened thither, and Aladdin received him in the hall of the four-and-twenty windows, with the princess at his side. Aladdin told him what had happened, and showed him the dead body of the magician that he might believe. A ten-days feast was proclaimed, and it seemed as if Aladdin might now live the rest of his life in peace, but it was not to be. The African magician had a younger brother, who was, if possible, more wicked and more cunning than himself. He traveled to China to avenge his brother's death, and went to visit a pious woman called Fatima, thinking she might be of use to him. He entered her cell and clapped a dagger to her breast, telling her to rise and do his bidding on pain of death. He changed clothes with her, colored his face like hers, put on her veil, and murdered her, that she might tell no tales. Then he went toward the palace of Aladdin, 
and all the people, thinking he was the holy woman, gathered round him, kissing his hands and begging his blessing. When he got to the palace, there was such a noise going on round him that the princess bade her slave look out of the window and ask what was the matter. The slave said it was the holy woman, curing people by her touch of their ailments, whereupon the princess, who had long desired to see Fatima, sent for her. On coming to the princess, the magician offered up a prayer for her health and prosperity. When he had done, the princess made him sit by her and begged him to stay with her always. The false Fatima, who wished for nothing better, consented, but kept his veil down for fear of discovery. The princess showed him the hall and asked him what he thought of it. It is truly beautiful, said the false Fatima. In my mind it wants but one thing. And what is that? said the princess. If only a rock's egg, replied he, were hung up from the middle of this dome, it would be the wonder of the world. After this, the princess could think of nothing but the rock's egg, and when Aladdin returned from hunting, he found her in a very ill humor. He begged to know what was amiss, and she told him that all her pleasure in the hall was spoiled for the want of a rock's egg hanging from the dome. If that is all, replied Aladdin, you shall soon be happy. He left her and rubbed the lamp, and when the genie appeared, commanded him to bring a rock's egg. The genie gave such a loud and terrible shriek that the hall shook. Wretch, he cried, it is not enough that I have done everything for you. But you must command me to bring my master and hang him up in the midst of this dome? You and your wife and your palace deserve to be burnt to ashes. But that this request does not come from you, but from the brother of the African magician, whom you destroyed. He is now in your palace disguised as the holy woman, whom he murdered. He it was who put that wish into your wife's head. Take care of yourself, for he means to kill you. So saying, the genie disappeared. Aladdin went back to the princess, saying his head ached, and requesting that the holy Fatima should be fetched to lay her hands on it. But when the magician came near, Aladdin, seizing his dagger, pierced him to the heart. What have you done? cried the princess. You have killed the holy woman. Not so, replied Aladdin, but a wicked magician, and told her of how she had been deceived. After this, Aladdin and his wife lived in peace. He succeeded the sultan when he died, and reigned for many years, leaving behind him a long line of kings. I hope you've enjoyed Aladdin and the Wonderful Lamp. This story has been rumbling around in my subconscious for years from the many versions I've seen and read. It's particularly interesting to me to go back to a tale like this after having something like the Disney film give it an entirely different life of its own. And now we'll talk about some of my favorite things. Castles and Cathedrals I've organized this segment so that each week we'll look at at least one French chateau, at least one castle, at least one cathedral, and at least one fortified medieval town. This section and the next one have a YouTube component with a link in the episode description so that you can see pictures of the places we discuss. Part of what I look for in our stopping points is a cultural presence, which often means having a long history or being used as a filming location. For today's journey through the world of medieval architecture, we'll start at the Chateau d'Inan in Bretagne, France. Called Donjon de la Duchesse Anne, or Keep of the Duchess Anne, after Anne of Brittany, who was Queen Consort of France twice in the 1490s. 
This particular keep is part of a much larger thread of ramparts, 2,600 meters, which still surround the old part of the town. It was built somewhere between 1382 and 1383 by John V. That's John V, Duke of Britannia, not John V, the heavy metal guitarist. Second, also in Britannia, we have the Fort Lalat, also called the Castle of the Roche-Guyon. It's situated on a rocky cap near the town of Plevenon. Construction began on the fort by Lord Matignon in the 1340s. Louis XIV held eight heavy cannon here, but it only just received electricity in 2015. The castle hosts medieval festivals every year, courtesy of the steward Langres family. It has an illustrious history in film, with at least 17 credits, including George Sidney's The Three Musketeers in 1948 with Gene Kelly and Lana Turner, and The Vikings in 1958 with Kirk Douglas and Tony Curtis. Next, we move from the French Chateau to the Italian Castello. We are in Abruzzo today, with the Norman castle and Versa degli Abruzzi, seen here in the upper left, built by Antonio de Sangro in the 15th century on the ruins of a 12th century tower. And here we see the Castello Orsini Colonna in Avezzano. Constructed in 1490 by Virginio Orsini, it was adapted to a fortified residence in 1565 by Marcantonio Colonna. Pictured, you see the castle as it sits today, and now as it appeared in a much older drawing. Now we arrive at the Castello Piccolomini in Celano. If you look this one up, there's a gorgeous library of the same name, but that library is at a different location inside Siena's cathedral. The castle was begun in 1392 by Pietro de Berardi and completed in 1463 by Antonio Todeschini. Following Piccolomini, we have the Castello Bominaco, a castle reconstructed in the 14th century, but dating from the 12th century. It sits atop a complex housing the Church of Santa Maria Assunta and the Oratory of San Pellegrino. If you don't actually watch the accompanying video, please take the time to look up the oratory. It is absolutely magnificent. Seventh in our journey, and last in our tour of Castelli di Abruzzo, is the Rocca Calascio. This is the oldest structure we've seen today, begun in the 10th century as a single watchtower. Notice the larger base stones, thought to have been used to make it impenetrable to invaders. Ironically, it was never battle-tested, but it was earthquake-tested in 1461, and didn't pass. The town below was rebuilt, the fortress was not. Near this fortress at a lower elevation, we see the octagonal Santa Maria del Pieta, a 17th century church. And as we were looking for the first castle with a presence in film, this is our stopping place for Abruzzo, as it was a location for Anton Corbein's 2010 film The American with George Clooney, Richard Donner's 1985 medieval fantasy Ladyhawk, and scenes for Jean-Jacques Arnaud's 1986 film after one of my favorite books, Umberto Eco's Name of the Rose, starring Sean Connery and Christian Slater. Next, we move from the fortified barracks to the fortified place of worship to see the Cathedral of Our Lady in Antwerp, Belgium. Construction began in 1352, but technically was never completed, and you readily notice the bell towers are not symmetrical. However, this belfry is listed as a UNESCO World Heritage Site under belfries of Belgium and France. In the 15th century, Johannes Achegem, one of the most important composers of the time, was here a vicar singer, beginning a long tradition of music at this particular church. Pictured now are three magnificent works of stained glass, seen left to right are Our Lady of Stekse by the Stalins and Jansons, St. Ursula and St. Gaspar by Didron, and Dedication of the Statue of Our Lady of Lourdes by Archbishop Deschamps by Stalins and Jansons. 
This cathedral also houses three paintings by Peter Paul Rubens. The inner length of the cathedral is 1,881 meters long, and the north tower is 123 meters tall. Truly a magnificent and reverent space. And on our ninth and final location for today's episode, we have the fortified town of Hapsala, Estonia. Hapsala is Estonian for Aspen, Hab, Grove, Sala, and the town dates from 1279. Hapsala is a seaside resort on Estonia's west coast. Known for centuries for warm seawater and curative mud, the salt mud spas used by the Romanovs over a hundred years ago are still in operation. It's the site of the Endelnellis fencing school, and thus became a setting for Klaus Hatto's 2015 biopic of Nellis, The Fencer. As you can see, the overlook of the town is in and of itself rather magical, and worth seeing more of if you have the time, but it features here for us because of its fortified 13th century walls and the 13th century Hapsala Castle, which also houses the diocese's cathedral. There's a legend of a white lady appearing on full moons in August, which, if you've ever seen Supernatural, you don't need to look up. Also every August, the town of Hapsala holds a music festival in the white lady's honor. And this ends our virtual tour of castles and cathedrals for this week. Up next, we move from real-world inspiration to the inspiration of creatures mythological and fantastic. In this week's I'd Like to Speak to the Menagerie, today we're going to explore the pantheon of mythological beings of the Abenaki people. These are an Algonquin-speaking people of Quebec, the Maritimes of Canada, and New England. Now, with many indigenous groups, there's a lot of crossover with others as far as shared creation stories and folklore. It should also be mentioned that a lot of these beings are confused with others, and some have many, many versions of their name and story. I'm not going to pedantically list every version. I'll just leave it at, I did my best with the time I had. I certainly didn't attempt to cover the entire pantheon either. If you look it up, you can quickly see it would be several episodes by itself. But we'll talk about six of the major gods, and then talk about some of the creatures ascribed to the people. Like the previous segment, this has a YouTube video linked in the episode description, so you can see these characters for yourself. As I'm speaking, remember that I'm actually looking at the images. Where possible, I've tried to show relevant representations, but where none are available, I refer to them as inspirational, and generally fell back on Dungeons and & Dragons and the world of video games to find what seemed like a related image to show. Artists are credited everywhere I found a name to credit. First, let's begin with Tabaldak, the creator, known as the owner, or created all living things but one, and we'll get to that one. He originally created people out of stone, but found them unfeeling and cold, so he dashed them across the landscape, and then created a people out of wood, who became the Abenaki. Pictured is an uncredited representation of Tabaldak. Next we have Gluskop, a kind, benevolent, and magical warrior against evil. After creating the humans, Tabaldak created Gluskop and his twin sister Malsumis, both Gluskop and Malsumis were given the power to create good in the world, but while Gluskop chose to do good, Malsumis chose the opposite. Pictured is the Millbrook First Nation Monument of Gluskop in Nova Scotia. And here we have possibly my favorite mythological being in any pantheon, the wise woodchuck goddess Agasqua, grandmother of Gluskop. The tale is told that when hunters were becoming too much of a problem, she helped Gluskop in preventing the overhunting of the fauna. Pictured is the most ferocious-looking woodchuck I could find. Now we see Adziozo, the giant, in an unknown representation known as He Who Created Himself. 
He's credited with creating natural features like mountains, valleys, and rivers, as well as Lake Champlain. After he was done creating, it's said he turned himself to a rock, which he still inhabits, called Rock Dunder, about two and a half miles west of Burlington, Vermont. Following Azioso, we see Mausumis, the aforementioned twin sister of Gluskop, who has the power to do good but chooses instead evil and trickery, with the ultimate goal of bringing an end to mankind. Of course, her known hijinks of putting thorns on plants and bees in cheesecake are thankfully not the most efficacious method for humanity's annihilation. Pictured is a representation by Moonlight150 on Reddit. The final entry for the Abenaki pantheon before switching to mythological creatures is the ghost rabbit Mateguas. Pictured is an unknown jewelry setting of the trickster god who happens to be Lord of the Dead. However, he also happens to be the founder of the first Medewiwini, or rather, Medicine Society, which was passed down to humans to help them in their healing pursuits. Now we switch from the pantheon over to mythical beings. First, we have an unknown representation of the Alombaguinosis, a trickster group of little folk who can change their body sizes at will. Next, we see the Asenikiwakwa, or stone giants, in an unknown representation. And here is the Asquidaid, which are fire elementals, or simply spectral fire, in an unknown representation. Now we see the insect spirit, Awahondo, represented by Mythica on Tumblr. Following Awahondo is Chibaisqueda, though our image is simply inspirational for that of the ghost of an improperly buried person. Twelfth on our list, we see an inspirational image to represent the Dogakwahoad, or little people. Obviously, a kender is not an Abenaki creature, but I'll take any chance I can get to talk about Larry Elmore's artwork. Next is the Zizi Bonda, simply known as a hideous monster, an artist representation by Hotshot Leska on Reddit. And here we have an unknown representation of the Kiwakwa, a half-human, half-animal, cannibalistic giant. Now that's terrifying. Another hideous monster, the Kogok, however, I found no representations. This seemed appropriately hideous. And now our third hideous monster, the Lolol, is here represented inspirationally by a bird beast from the video game Monster Hunter. Now we see the Maskimonguezolos, which are shape-shifting toad spirits, in representation by Rodolfo Gorin on Pinterest. The Abenaki having a belief in old world magic, it's no surprise that they have at least one named type of magic user, the Medicoleno, or Ice-Hearted Wizards. The inspirational image is by Too Blind to Draw on DeviantArt. Following the Medicoleno, we see an inspirational image for the Nanom Kiapoda, not an earth elemental, but rather an earthquake spirit. The pictured earth elemental, however, is by Steve Goad on DeviantArt. Our 20th entry is the rather humorous reversal of what we usually think of as a fish man, the Andam Kanoet, a fish-human hybrid who's known to molest those who go to bathe in the lake, again in representation by Rodolfo Gorin on Pinterest. Next, we have the magnificent-looking Pamola, a weather spirit, in an eagle-like representation by the Coffee and Creatures blog. Again by Rodolfo Gorin on Pinterest, this is a representation of the Pimsquawagenawad, a water spirit. And here, reminiscent of the Loch Ness Monster, is an unknown representation of the Pitaskog, a serpentine rain spirit. Now we see an illustrated representation by Majimundi of the Pokwejimen, or tree spirits. Following the Pokwejimen, we have the fiercest-looking image I could find to appropriately represent the Sinu, a vampiric demon, 
but this is only an inspirational image with no authorship. 27th in our litany of creatures and beings is an inspirational image for the water spirits known as Wanagamezak by Jackie Travers, although her original painting references a much broader belief landscape than just the Abenaki. Next, we see the Wasan Mangalina in representation by painter Denise Weaver Ross. These are creatures of light, or rather, aurora spirits. And for our final entry in exploring this quite varied and fantastic world of Abenaki legend, we have an unknown representation of the Wawondia Megwa, which are shape-shifting snail spirits. When I first thought to do this segment and chose to start with the Abenaki, I could not have imagined a more diverse grouping of characters and beasts. I could see an entire video game populated by just these creatures, and for that matter, I bet the creators of Monster Hunter could too. Simply magnificent. But, as you can hopefully see, I chose to do this because now we have much more mental mana to add atmosphere to our readings, using real-world places and mythological characters. This was quite an involved episode to make, but the next one should be a lot easier, and to wit, on time, meaning by Friday. I had a blast doing all the research for this, and I hope you enjoyed finding out about all these creatures and places, in addition to hearing the classic tale of Aladdin and his wonderful lamp. If you'll excuse me now, I think Sebastian is waking up hungry. So, a father who reads will say goodbye until the next Once Upon a Time. A brief word about production. I'm a one-person team, and I support creation of this podcast with Patreon. Find A Father Who Reads on Patreon to subscribe for your own downloads of the readings for your own playlist for playtime, quiet time, tea time, or for your own curiosity about the vast literature of mythology and folklore that so many of us don't have the time to read. To follow Sebastian's story and baby pictures, please follow at A Father Who Reads, all one word, on Twitter. Thank you very much, and I look forward to reading for you and your family again soon.